0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Joanne. And I'm Kim. So today we have a very interesting topic to discuss. And I'm gonna start by saying this. When you think of Kool-Aid, watermelon, sweet potato pie, black eye peas, and collard greens... Kim, what do these foods sound like to you?
1: To be honest, it sounds like foods that people would associate with Black people.
0: Right. So I wondered to myself, why is that? Why are certain foods considered to be Black people food? So during some research that we were doing, we found an article by a man named William R. Black titled, How Watermelons Became a Racist Trope. William Black explained when American slaves won their emancipation back in the day, free Black people had to find a way to make their living, so they grew, ate, and sold watermelons. Sounds um, smart to me. So William Black then stated that by doing so, Southern whites felt threatened and responded by making the fruit a symbol of Black people's perceived uncleanliness, laziness, and childness, and their unwanted public presence. Mm -hmm. I mean, Blacks were now free— they were trying to be what we today are doing as entrepreneurs and provide for our families. But the response from the ex-slave slaves, masters was to ruin whatever way of life that these now, you know, free slaves were trying to make for themselves.
1: I mean, Joanne, this is crazy. I mean, talk about haters, right? Right. I mean, I remember when we were researching, I also came across another stereotype and that stereotype said that black people loved chicken. So of course, back in the day, there was no such thing as skinless boneless chicken. I mean, that ain't come out in the market yet. So in order for people to eat chicken or chicken leg or chicken wing, there had to be the bone in it. So the best way to consume that was to consume it with your fingers. Mm -hmm. So in the American culture, eating with your hands was not proper etiquette. And guys, this is like legit, legit. So we're not making anything up here. So black people, when they would eat that chicken leg or that chicken wing with their fingers, they were considered to be dirty because they were handling their food. In other words, there was no table manners present.
0: And, you know, it's even crazier to me because truthfully, this was only seen... um, well, I'm not going to say only, but this was an American thing to look down on people who were eating with their hands because across the way, you know, people, cultures like the Ethiopians and the Indian cultures, they it was common practice. And even till this day, it's common practice for them to eat right, with their hands. Exactly. And it's very common now for Americans to eat with their hands, you know, eating foods that we call finger foods or picnic food type foods. And you'll see people eating with their hands nowadays. But back then in America, they found a way to make it look like, you know, we as black people Mm -hmm. were just uncleanly and just dirty for eating with our hands. And um, another thing is that I heard about the chicken stereotype in a movie called um, The Birth of a Nation, the original one. That was the silent movie in 1915. I know there's a a newer version, but... The the older ones. So they depicted um, Black people as being rowdy, unintelligent, and people who drank and ate fried
1: foods with their hands. I've heard about that, that movie as well. I think the original title was called The Klansman. So it basically paints the KKK as heroes to keep Black people in check. And I'm not surprised that these lingering stereotypes are still present today. Not surprised at all. Neither am I. I'm not at all.
0: So today we have with us Ladarius Madison, who is a fellow dietitian and Ph.D. candidate, might I add that. Ladarius is an associate professor and dietetic internship coordinator at Life University here in Atlanta. But I want you guys to know that Ladarius is a good friend of ours, um, of Kim and I's.
1: That he is. And we
0: talk about this all the time, how Ladarius is an anomaly in our field, because not only is he black, but he is one of the very few males we have in the dietetics field.
1: He is a unicorn. Welcome
0: to our podcast, Ladarius. Ladarius.
2: I said, hello, thanks for having me, you guys. It's been a while since we chatted, but I'm so happy to talk to you guys today. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, and definitely so are we. So let's just jump right into the questions. So Ladarius, Dr. Madison. So prior to recording this episode, Joanne sent you over an article from the Huff Post titled, White People Food is Creating an Unattainable Picture of Health. When Joanne sent me the same article, the first thing that caught my attention was the title, the term white people food. I'm pretty sure you heard of that term before. So, my question to you is what really differentiates white people food from black people food?
2: (laughs) So, not Dr. Madison. I'm not quite Dr. (laughs) Madison. (laughs) But yeah, so I definitely have heard that term before. And honestly, Obviously, we don't have white people food versus black people food. It's really just food, and food is obviously essential to everything that we need. Um, but I really think a lot of what has happened now has been just there's a shift in the atmosphere. And we have more African Americans nowadays who are getting formal education and not just getting a bachelor's degree, but getting advanced education. And of course, the public health side of me. Is well-versed in that and that just shows us that there's a relationship. There's research out there that says that um, the higher education we attain, so does the increase in the likelihood of us participating in activities that usually will produce healthy outcomes. So you have people who are exercising more. You have people who are, you know, cooking more and trying to eat healthier and all these different things. And so, essentially, now we are, reducing all of those things that in the past we've been told that we're going to have type two diabetes and heart disease and hypertension, all these things because our family has had them because we're doing things differently. But this whole white versus black food, I think the media has kind of perpetuated that whole notion as well, because they paint this image that what is healthy is white. And they're painting this image that there are things out there that We as the culture, African-American, the black people just in general, are just not well versed in with how to prepare them or just the foods in general. So I'll give some examples of what I mean. You know, there's stuff out there that says sweet potatoes are better than regular potatoes. Right. Okay. well, I'm well versed in sweet potatoes. My grandma makes sweet potatoes all the time. She makes sweet potato pie, not sweet potato mash, you understand? So the same thing like with African-Americans, we like our wings, we love chicken and different things like that. We love barbecue wings, fried chicken wings, baked wings, well, now they say you can make cauliflower wings, okay? So it's like, well, how am I supposed to have cauliflower wings? That's a vegetable. It's not even a chicken. So how is that going to be a cauliflower wing? And then, you know, even things like rice um, and quinoa, I grew up eating rice and salmon with my grandmother. That was thing at our house for breakfast well i was like 25 in my master's program with a degree in nutrition that before i even experimented with quinoa, and i'm from alabama so i mean that's a whole thing within itself so you know you take me having that type of education in nutrition versus someone who has no formal education or no formal education in nutrition at all and try to introduce them to these things there are so many barriers but that's the image and that's the message that media has put out there to distinguish between white versus black
0: food i am i i so agree with you ladarius as a matter of fact when you were speaking um it came to mind what i'm always thinking is a problem with how we try to introduce new foods to to people is we title them Foods that they're used to. I guess they think that's like a draw to get them to want to eat that food. But for me, if you tell me something is some wings, some chicken wings, I'm expecting to bite into chicken wings. And when I bite into something that don't taste like chicken wings, I'm not going to try it again. So, you know, I feel like that's a downfall on how foods are being introduced. Like we're titling them rice, cauliflower rice, or cauliflower chicken wings or we're just calling it chicken wings and then people are biting into and they're like this tastes nothing like chicken wings i'm used to
2: yeah absolutely i totally agree i mean that stuff um there are things that i have introduced to my parents or introduced to my family and said very much so like cauliflower match my grandma was like what is that don't bring that up in here. And, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, you, you know, yeah. so you have to take those things into consideration because I I tell people all the time, my grandmother, a prime example would be something like, and this is a simple example, but this is something, this is the first one that comes to mind. Something as simple as hummus. I tell her, you know, grandma, try hummus. Try hummus and crackers or hummus or whatever. And she, like, I don't... I don't want that. I don't know what that is or, you know, um, but it's not that she doesn't know what it is. She's just never heard it called that or made it like that before. Because the thing is, she's familiar with all types of beans and peas and nuts and all of that because she's from Alabama. And so she could make some hummus and it probably would be some of the best hummus she ever had or we've ever had. But because that's not how she grew up eating those things, she's not going to make them like that. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it makes total sense. I also like the fact that you brought out it's also like a marketing ploy. And I didn't I didn't realize it until you said it. I'm here just thinking about walking through the aisles of Walmart or Publix or whatever grocery store I frequent. And it's it's simple, it's simply the advertising. I think advertising nowadays caters a lot to the Caucasian population. And the reason why I say that is because you're going to find like a black Person is not going to go pick up, you know, frozen cauliflower rice. They're not going to go pick up frozen cauliflower pizza crust or hummus. You know, we like to make things from scratch. Mm -hmm. And we do live in a microwave society where people just like to open the package, just pop it in and go about about our days. Because I know, like, for instance, my grandmother, she is an Afro-Caribbean, but Mm -hmm. she's not going to shop in the frozen food food aisle, she's going to get her cauliflower and she's going to make it from mm-hmm. scratch instead of buying something that's frozen. Yeah. That's very true. Solidarius,
0: as dieticians, we are taught about the dietary guidelines in school and we're taught about it and we talk about it to our clients and our patients or whatnot. And so these dietary guidelines, for those who don't know, they're reviewed every five years and the next one is due to come out for in 2020, which is... In a few days, basically, and it's going to be 2020 to 2025. So the committee of this that come makes up this dietary guideline is currently made up of 20 people, and of the 20 people, they have one black male, no black women at all, one Hispanic woman, and one Hispanic male, um, and these are the only minorities that they have on that a uh, whole panel if i'm not mistaken the rest of the committee is made up of white men and women with with the women um outnumbering the men on that panel so how do you think that this panel of 20 people who where the minorities are not even equaling the majority how do you think that impacts the definition of how healthy foods are portrayed, like how healthy foods are defined out in the world?
2: So that's a very good question. And it's so funny that you said that because you say one male
1: mm-hmm.
2: and mostly women and then a couple of Hispanics.
1: It, yeah, it's one black male, mm-hmm.
2: and one, one black male. So that was in itself. it. Automatically, not the fact that it's one black male, but just listening to how the group is set up, the first thing that comes to mind to me that is there's a very narrow and biased perception with health and health and, and what it highlights for us is just the lack of diversity in our profession. I mean, you have, and just call it what it is. We have, we're in a profession that's dominated by Caucasian females, So five feet tall, blonde, blue eyes. I mean, that's what it is. And you got these people, I mean, these women, making these decisions for the entire country with this very narrow perception of what health is. I mean, you have these, you have women making decisions in, for example, public health, doing WIC, anything like that. I used to work in WIC. We have these, types, these women making decisions for Hispanic children with no regard to their culture mm. and their decisions of what they've heard on the radio on their way in. Or you have these women, you know, making the decisions related to African-American women about who they're experiencing gestational diabetes or whatever the case may be, same thing with no regard to her lifestyle, her culture, her background, or any of those things. This, because this is something that they've heard. they just kind of brushed over it and just made up something. And I just say, say made up something, but they've not really done the true work. Um, and then even, for example, even where I currently um, work at now and I, where I'm precepting some of our some of our students, we have dietitians making recommendations to cancer patients who are, and many times, black men, black men with prostate cancer, and you have a white woman who's a dietitian making recommendations for him, and she don't even, ain't never even talked to a black man. These are the types of things. And so they're making the decisions for everybody. So I think it does just paint a very narrow and um, just a very narrow scope of what health and healthy diets look like and how people can achieve those things. Um, it's kind of unrealistic in my opinion
1: you know, I like the fact that you said that that they are bringing in their daily experiences into making food decisions for the entire nation because yeah, even though a few of them are PhD level dietitians which you will soon be a PhD level dietitian, I like the fact that you did incorporate that there are social structures that still come into play of what they hear on the radio, what they see on TV, um different things that they may have read in the newspaper, so that definitely if it doesn't have a direct impact, it has some type of indirect impact on the health of the nation.
0: Mm-hmm. So, absolutely.
1: so this brings me to the next question. So people assume, or they like to assume that black people eat unhealthy. I think the media and historical stereotypes have done a lot. It basically has a lot to do with it. I know you were raised in the South, as you said earlier, um, so give us an example of a flavorful dish you ate growing up, which you knew didn't have these stereotypes, mm-hmm. which I so pretty sure right. it, may, it may be hard because I mean, black people food in general has a lot of stereotypes to it. Yes. <laughs>
2: um. Again, yes, I did. I grew up in the South. I keep saying that because that is near, near to my heart. But one of the things that comes to mind right off the bat, is um, rutabagas. And I don't even know if a lot of people are familiar with rutabagas. But that's something that my grandmother used to make for me faithfully. Um, And it's in like the green and cabbage family. Mm -hmm. Um, They usually have like a sort of like an orange coloring to them and they can be baked and they can be boiled or whatever. But it was it was for me, we used to have grandma and grandson time, and that was the time where she would get the rutabaga, she'd chop off the leaves on the top, and then she had to cut them, and they were real tough, but they were so good, And but she made them the same way that she would make things like greens, you know, would put different seasonings in them and different things like that, And but again... People are not familiar with a rutabaga, and so they assume because it's been made in the country, it's been made in Alabama, and she has put a little seasoning in that and a seasoning with the turkey bone or whatever she has done, that now is unhealthy. When it essentially the rutabaga itself is very much so packed with a lot of essential nutrients, um, it has things in it like vitamin C. It has. Uh, which we all know, obviously, is good for collagen formation and bone formation, all those things. I'll tell you another one. Um, another thing that my grandmother used to like to make were, and, that, and this is probably not the best example, but this is one that I definitely want to bring in, uh, pork or pork chops. She loved to make pork chops a baked pork chop or fried pork chop or however. Uh, but, of course, we know that pork is a good source of thiamine which, you know, is good for energy and different things like that. So I think just that whole notion that it historically and culturally, African-Americans have always made healthy choices when it comes to food. Maybe the preparation of it may not have always been the best, but the foods that we've eaten have not necessarily been bad for
0: us. That is so true, Ladarius. You know, in season one, we talked about how Black people have had, you know, the hand, the hand that they've been dealt is what we've basically dealt with our whole lives. You know, during slavery times, the foods that we were allowed to eat, we had to make do with what we had. And if it was shitlins, you know, we hooked them things up to make them be as good as we can, you know, can be. So it's not necessarily the fact that we eat bad foods. It's also the fact, you know, it's how we, were, we prepare the foods nowadays, too. Um, you know, back then we were eating more from the fat of the land, if you want to call it that. We we're eating more whole foods that were from the ground and whatnot. But nowadays we're eating a lot more processed foods um, and preparing our foods not in the best way.
1: You know, also, Joanne, something else that I wanted to add to that is I also think there's a lot of lifestyle factors that deal with that too, because I remember for another episode in season one, I was looking up something on the Maasai warriors and, and a lot of their diet includes saturated fat. I think on a daily basis, don't quote me on this, they consume over a thousand milligrams of cholesterol on a daily basis. Mm. And it is recommended that the average American consume, what is it? No more than 300? So I think, and but their lifestyle, when you look at their lifestyle, they're very active. It could also, Mm -hmm. genetics could play a large part in it as well. But, you know, when you were talking about, you know, they had to hook the food up because it didn't taste too good, I still feel not only black people, but white people be hooking up their food too. You know, sometimes a little salt may be off, but that just may be a little stereotype. (laughs) But I feel lifestyle factors and it just comes into play because everyone's in like a sedentary, not everyone, but society. It's more sedentary than it was.
0: Mm -hmm. So LaDarius, do you think there's a way to introduce new foods to different cultures and change that white people food, Black people food perception that we have out here?
2: Um, Absolutely. Um, I think probably one of the easiest ways to do it is to do so by finding ways to make things fun. Um, I mean, if we're starting with children, obviously introducing things to children very early on. Um, and it's, again, is something that I learned in WIC. And when I say introduce it to your child or introduce it to your children, not just one time. And the child says, I don't like it and they don't ever have to try it again. I mean, several times. Um, and because as children, they learn to eat from us we're their first teachers when it comes to food so they learn to eat by watching what we eat they explore things by watching what we explore so if you try something and you make a face with it then they're going to associate that with something that's not good or or nasty so um and that was just again something i learned in weeks i know another thing that um is probably helpful or may be helpful me and my mother have decided that and this is a little tradition that we started. Um, I guess about three years ago now, and for two reasons. One, to get me more well-versed in the kitchen, because, of course, I'm the dietitian that doesn't like to cook. Mm.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but also because my mother is a very good cook, and but she also has a very limited palate as well. So what we have decided is that every year during holiday season, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or both, We pick a dish to cook, but we make the dish with some new ingredient that we might not have tried before. So I've introduced my mom to cauliflower. I've introduced my mom to quinoa. And I keep harping on those because those are like the two most recent things, but just different things like that. Um, If you want to be creative, if you're out here exploring love life like I am apparently, you know, I try <laughs> to do that. <laughs> you know, I try to do that with bloating. you know, find places to go that you both can try something different that you never tried before. Um, and those things have been helpful. Um, I recently tried octopus, and that was a huge thing for me to go from not really eating seafood at all to jumping straight in and doing something that, that extreme. But I did it with somebody who... Love seafood and so it wasn't that bad actually. And I don't know in mm-hmm. it, you know, but in my mind, of course, when they were like, Oh, you wanna try the octopus? And I was like, <laughs> <I'm> <"No."> I tried the octopus and it was okay. So those are some of the ways that it has helped me, um, and that's kind of helped me sort of break down my stereotype or my perception of this is a white versus black thing. I tried, and 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 it's been fun.
1: Wow, you should you you guys should see my face when you said octopus, Darius. Me too. (laughs) My eyes got all big. My mouth opened. Wow. So, you know, I like the fact that you say, you know, you're willing um, to try new things. So the HuffPost article stated that, quote unquote, stereotype is extremely frustrating. And we all have to find an approach to food that is that still respects and honors our cultures. So besides having an open mind, as you said, and also making food fun, is there any other advice that you can give us on how to... Um, kill stereotypes.
2: Mm-hmm. So, I think from the for from the professional perspective, I think part of that is going to be our jobs as dietitians to sort of really help to break down or dismantle this whole idea that health is an all or nothing thing. Like, and I, and it, it's very hard to do that because we think oh. You know, if I I have to cook, I have to cook, have home cooked meals three, four, five times the whole week. Or if I don't, then now I'm not I'm I'm unhealthy. I gotta work out seven days a week. If I don't, oh my god, I'm unhealthy. And so again, me going back to my public health background, and like you mentioned to it or alluded to earlier, we're willing to consider all of the things that influence the decisions that people make, not just about food, but just about their lifestyles in general, because you know what we learn is that there's so many other factors to consider, um, and it's not just you know how can I say um, you know if you don't if you can't cook every day, if you can't cook five days a week, but you can cook three days a week, then that doesn't mean you're unhealthy. That actually means mm-hmm. that you're being flexible because you're considering the rest of the things that you got going on in your life. You can't work mm-hmm. out seven days a week, but you can work out two days a week and then on the third day you're going, to go out and you're going to go take a stroll with the child and you're going to go walk around the neighborhood, then you're not being unhealthy, you're being flexible and considering all of the other things that you have going on. I think part of it is really just finding a place to start to really break that down and, and setting small goals. Um, another thing is, you know, trying to figure out a way to break down again this whole idea of health being a black versus white. And it it's really hard to do that when all of the things that we use to make these decisions or make these recommendations really skew our beliefs as African-Americans. They tell us that we are like more prone to everything. You're more prone to diabetes because your grandparents had diabetes. You're more prone to cancer. You're everything that comes out there that... African-Americans are disproportionately affected by H, Y, and Z, but nothing comes out that tells us in order to reduce those things, these are some of the steps that you can take to do that. Um, Or, you know, or that sort of follow along with this trend, like I mentioned earlier, this new wave or this new atmosphere of, of, of african americans who are you know taking on healthier lifestyles being more active there hasn't been much change with the information that's put out to reflect that either
0: right and that information they're putting out is it's not the information is not specific to us it doesn't take into consideration our financial capabilities our cultural backgrounds it, they're very general They're very general, those recommendations. And that's one of the issues that are probably, you know, um, preventing us from succeeding at most of the stuff. Absolutely. You know, I also wanted to add when you were talking about um, the reintroducing new foods. And I don't think people realize, kid, adult, whomever you are, it takes at least 21 times of being exposed to something a food or a habit for it to become a regular part of your lifestyle.
1: That's true. So with
0: me having the kids that I have, like I have four of them, as you guys know, it takes me a long time, even as a dietitian mom to get my kids to eat healthy foods. And um, to, to piggyback off of what Ladaria said on um, earlier, I definitely don't cook every day. I don't have the time to like my life. (laughs) It's not made up that way. So three times a week is the, most that you'll see me cooking, and I make my own little frozen dinners. I'll I'll freeze stuff, you know, have stuff for later on in the week or whatnot. There's no way in the world I can do it all,
1: right? And for someone that doesn't have kids like Ladarius and myself, I'm, we don't cook every day. I'm I'm pretty I'm I'm assuming Ladarius, we don't cook every day either. But you know that is true. Definitely planning ahead though. Um, just to make because I mean it's so easy to grab something and go nowadays. Very, it's so yeah. easy. Yeah.
2: And then, I mean, and you don't have to assume you're absolutely right. Ladarius like, there is the cook you're <laughs> 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 because there is, you try, cook on no day, like, don't to find food. <laughs> But you're absolutely right. Um and you just said like it is so easy to just grab and go, especially for somebody like like myself, you know, I work when like most people, like we're working, um, manage, and I'm the coordinator, like you mentioned earlier, I'm managing rotations for 16 students. So I'm driving all around the city of Atlanta in this traffic, trying to keep up with these students and make sure that they're doing okay in addition to trying to go back and forth to class which as Joanne and Kim, you guys both know, Statesboro is three and a half hours away. And so I'm commuting to class to and from mm-hmm. in the middle of the week, you know. So in my, I really had to take my own advice when I said earlier, you know, I really was beating myself up about it and thinking, oh, my God, y'all, I need to cook more. I need to make healthier options. And I had to change that mindset and say, OK, I can't do it every day because I'm leaving. Like on Tuesday, I would leave. I would go to work. And this is just a day for me. I would get up in the morning. I get up at 6 o'clock. I'm at the hospital with the student by 830. And we're from at the hospital from 830 until 430. Now, mind you, on Tuesday, that's the day that I have class in Statesboro. So I'm at the hospital from 830 until 1230. And then I drive three and a half hours to class. I'm in class from five until nine, and then I drive three and a half hours back to Atlanta. So when am I going to cook?
1: <laughs> like,
2: and when am I going to, you know? And I just had to be okay with it. And I, I say that story to just for other people. Like sometimes it's more about the choices that you make in the places that you go. Like I'll go to and grab a that um not exactly, but um, we have this new place now, Gusto, mm-hmm. which it, and it's, I love Gusto. I mean, I'll go in there, I'll get a wrap, and I'll fill it up with brown rice and some grilled chicken. And for me, that's a healthy choice.
0: So, truthfully, the idea that Black people food, watermelon, fried chicken, collard greens, and all that stuff, it's all bogus. You know Ladarius, We work out here in the South. Would they be feeding these residents out here fried chicken? And my residents, they're not Black. Most of them, different, um, you know, uh, uh. Facilities are, you know, different in their their demographics, but I have a lot of um, facilities that are made up of majority Caucasian residents and they're eating the fried chicken, the collard greens, they're requesting the watermelon just like anybody else would. They're good food
2: hmm And that's what they're familiar with. That's what they know. Right. No. Um. And I mean, you know, my facility, and I had all men, and that's exactly what they wanted. They did not want. They were very adamant about we want fried chicken we want. And I even had a have even had residents request that we put neck bone on the menu, and I said, mm-hmm. you
1: know, wow, are not going to be able
2: to do that. I have to Wow. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, that's what they want. Yes. That, 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 that's the part of their culture that they get to hold on to. Like, that's exactly. So why take that away from
1: them? Exactly. Right. Yeah, definitely food. Food culture is defined by the foods that you eat. So I do like that. Right. So food is
0: comforting. Yeah. Mm hmm. That's very true. So, Ladarius, being that you are the internship coordinator at the university that you work at, how do you think, in general, for all these other internships out there, how can they incorporate um, a cultural competency court um, program, like making it so that when people leave their dietetic internship program, they're a little bit more culturally diverse, even if, you know, I I think they need to make the, the, the people in the program themselves more culturally um, diverse, but just the knowledge of, of cultures out there. So people won't have that one mindset just throwing cauliflower at people just because that's what they've been told is healthy and they're not taking into consideration this person's background. Mm -hmm.
2: So there, that's a really, really good question as well. And there are a couple things that we've been doing or that I've been really pushing for us to do with our program. So of course I've only been there since July. Um, And so in that short time, we've had several conversations about cultural competency, diversity and all those things to really, really, really hone in on producing well-rounded students who can deal with any type of circumstances, any type of experiences. And I think we're doing a really good job. But a couple of things are, um, like you said, it starts with the people who are in the program and not just the people who are students in the program, but the people who are manning the programs as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying, randomly just called and we were chatting about where I am in my doctoral program and dissertation process. And I was like, well, I'm at this point and I'm doing this and this is what my timeline looks like for the next, for the upcoming year. And she said, well, you know, one of the universities here is really looking to do some diversity hires, for example, and we don't really, they don't have a really big, um, diverse faculties. We have, you know, it's a huge, huge campus uh, in the middle of the city and we only have two, three, maybe three faculty members who of color. Um, and so that's the thing. And in addition to that, so figuring out a way to sort of attract more individuals with diverse backgrounds to your program for that whole purpose of producing um, well-rounded students. In addition to that, um, I feel like Recruiting students, and y'all know me, I I love, love, love dealing with students. I love to recruit. So, and this is something that's definitely going to be on our docket for upcoming seasons. We're recruiting students from diverse backgrounds. I'm definitely looking for students who are African-American students who have come from, you know, the historically Black colleges, and particularly those in the South, like Tennessee State, um, those from Alcorn in Mississippi, Fort Valley in, in rural Georgia, tuskegee and alabama alabama a&m like those that have didactic program at these universities that are training african-american students on how to be dietitians um mm-hmm. and so that's another way another thing that we're doing is also incorporating cultural competency conversations in our interview process we want to know what our students are thinking before before we bring them on so we'll know you know what types of presentations and what types of information we need to have readily available for them when they get addition in addition to that i bring i personally bring all of my cultural competency competency and public health training into the conversation in any of my lectures mm-hmm. um, and even at the hospital we talk about especially in a nutrition assessment phase and we talk about everything that can that needs to be considered before we make these recommendations for these patients, because I think sometimes the students get a little skewed on how they should do that. You know, they say, oh, I think the patient has dehydration, the layout say dehydration, the mm-hmm. science doesn't say dehydration, we need to give extra fluids so or whatever the case may be. And, and so I said, well, why is the patient dehydrated? And then they look at me dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. And when you talk, but then you go and talk to the patient and you realize the patient didn't have a consistent intake because he's homeless or in between, mm-hmm. well, he's, he made the comment that he was in between homes. So then I said, well, what is in between homes? Like, let's talk a little bit more about that and come to find out he was in between homes because he was homeless. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and so at that right there, that changes how you recommend or the care that you render to this, this patient because you're not going to recommend Whole Foods or, you know, World. where else do they go? Publix and all these places when these people don't have access to those types of things. It changes and it makes you a better provider. Conferences, we talk about trying to find things around the city where we can send our students or take them to become more educated. And we even do stuff, we do a lot of stuff in the community. Um, And these are just things that I'm saying that we're doing, but these are also, it's not just, And to us, you can do these even at any program. But I think Mm -hmm. the more exposure that these students have, the better that they will be. Um, And and not everybody doesn't want want to be a community health dietitian. But the point is to have that exposure. So in any situation, you can give the best, the most informed and the most
1: found advice.
2: You know what I mean?
1: You know, I do like that. The fact that you are starting, you know, starting exactly where you are. Because a lot of times, I know for me, my intern, well, not even my internship, during my college days, I met, and I was like 19, I met a white girl that has never met a black person before in her whole life. (laughs) And I'm just like, what world are we living in? But anyway... I say that to say, as you stated earlier, Ladarius, some of these dietitians, and we know majority dietitians are Caucasian females. They may have never spoken to a black man, a black woman before. So I also think that this conversation needs to continue past the dietetic internship, past the RD exam, and even just going into like CEUs. Like to me, these things should be required Mm -hmm. for continuing education, because, I mean, dietetic interns, we do anything to pass our internship. So I know my internship was all about cultural competency, but I just think, you know, the academy needs to, and I'm, I'm saying it, I'm calling it out, needs to take things a step further. I think this just needs to be ongoing conversations.
2: Absolutely. I totally agree. I mean, I still think that it, it, it still, Interesting or shocking to me when I mention to people or when when someone overhears me saying I'm a dietitian and then they take a double look. Like it's like yeah, I'm a dietitian. I'm a dietitian, and it's a whole lot of us out here that are doing X, Y, and Z. But people that still like, oh my god. Well, but nobody. Also, I also think that we need to do a better job to, um about putting out what it is that we exactly do. Because People don't know that. And that makes it difficult, too, because, you know, every day and even when people overhear me saying that I'm a dietitian, if they are not a dietitian, they automatically assume that, you know, I'm here to take their orders and (laughs) put their trades together. So I find myself oftentimes. You know, having to just say, "Well, that's not exactly what we do." Right. It is that we we work very closely with those individuals, and we couldn't do what we do without them, and vice versa. But that's not what we do. You know, right. um, I'm here to give you medical nutrition therapy. I'm here to give you nutrition counseling. I'm here to help you have a better relationship with your food. You know, those types of things.
0: That's true, and and you know, it's kind of hard out there to for people to understand what we do exactly because you were confused. people were still confused about the term dietitian and term nutritionist. Who's who are we both? So that's definitely confusion. I still encounter, um, even in this day and age, I thought we were getting, getting better, but even today, I, I, people are still confused about who's who, who's an expert, who's not. And then you're competing against those who are, um, who wake up one day and decide to call themselves a nutritionist. um, right. Because they lost this amount of weight or whatnot, and now they are an expert, so people don't know who who's who and who's who does what. Yeah,
2: I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, I, it's an ongoing conversation with my friends and I. Um, and I think you know, as you guys know, I have a lot of friends that are also in healthcare as well, and I I feel good. I give myself a pat on the back for especially the two the three that are physicians because they really really rely heavily on their dietitians based on the conversation that we had. I mean, we have gotten to some heated arguments or not arguments, but we've had some heated conversations about the role of dietitians in the whole grand scheme of things when it comes to health. And so, and, and this, and it goes back to this right here, like what people are choosing to put or not put into their bodies and why they're making those choices, because sometimes they don't really know, you know, they just assume as well, because, this is what they've read or this is what they've heard. And so we have to have those conversations. I'm like, as a physician or as a nurse practitioner, are you at, what are the questions that you're asking these people? Like, do you know why they keep coming in they with repeat offenders or so you call them, they keep coming in with high blood sugar. Do you know why that's the case? Well, why are they making those decisions? Where do they live? Do they live in a food desert? Or do they live in a food swamp? Those are two, you know, those terms can be used interchangeably sometimes. But just stuff like that, you know, and they, Be like, well, we don't know. That's your job. And I'm saying, but it's your job to be at least familiar with it so that you can also provide (laughs) well-rounded good services as well. So and so we have these conversations quite often. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, that's good. I'm very glad that you're you're educating your friends, because I know we definitely need more primary care (laughs) providers who are well versed in what dietitians do. So Ladarius, you've dropped a lot of information on us
0: today and you have um, opened our eyes to a lot of things. So is there anything else that you want to add in regards to the black people food um, and white people food uh, definitions and statements?
2: Um, Not really. I think, you know, first of all, I want to tell you guys, thank you guys for having me. Of course, really, I've enjoyed that. Um, but other than if I had to leave a takeaway message for this whole conversation, it would really just to be: um, eat, what, eat what you love to eat, mm-hmm. enjoy the foods that you love to enjoy because those foods remind you of who you are and they give you a sense of comfort and all the things that we've talked about. And, you know, rather than just listening to what someone else has said, this is the white right person who just tried them, have an open mind. I'll be doing it. And everybody knows that it's a real struggle for me <laughs> to try a lot of food. You know, it is a real struggle. But there are people, and seek help. There are people out there like us who can help you through that because we've experienced some of those same things as well. So, yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much. Is there any social media platforms that you like to tell our audience about so they can follow you?
2: I can be reached at Digest with Darius, and that's the word digest. B-I-G-E-S-T with W-I-T-H Darius D-A-R-I-U-S all one word on Instagram and if you tag me I respond if you message me I respond I probably communicate more with people on Instagram than I do in real life I tell Kim all the time there's so many people who have my phone number just off I need to stop doing that first of all, <laughs> I'm all as soon as somebody say hey I have a question I'm like okay text me and it, it could be about anything so but yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> well thank you so much Ladarius for being on our podcast we definitely are going to have you back on here because you are a heap you have a heap of knowledge and the fact that you are um, a dietetics coordinator and you are black at that is not something we come um, we find uh, a lot in our field
2: well I'll be happy to come back whenever you guys want to have maybe by the time I come back i actually really be Dr. Madison by then That'll be a whole different conversation that'll
1: have to be had. Yes, (laughs) definitely. Well, thanks so much, Ladarius.